We're looking at Exodus uh, chapter 14. So we've been doing this series um, in Exodus. We actually started in May, can you believe? <laughs> Before the summer, and now it's coming to the end. Um, but we've reached sort of the climax of the story, where um, it's actually my favorite part. It's probably a lot of people's favorite part of this whole story because it captures the most, one of the most memorable um, and dramatic epic scenes in the whole Bible. And I get the privilege of, of speaking about it, <laughs> or the challenge, I don't know. Um, so anyway, we're, we're about to see a newly liberated nation of people actually become trapped again, um, down a dead-end road this time, with an Egyptian army racing after them on 600 chariots to re-enslave them. We're going to see pillars of cloud, pillars of fire, a pillar of cloud which shields the Israelites from their enemy. Moses, their faithful leader, raising his staff over this Red Sea with this expectant faith and a mighty windstorm that rushes in and splits this whole sea in two. And then the miraculous victory for God's people as the waters come crashing down on every single one of these people who have been oppressing them for so long. It's actually quite easy to forget, once we look and read uh, chapter 14, how the story began. It's um, this spectacular work of God, which we read about, had a very, very, very small beginning, where a baby was placed in a basket. And it reminds me of one of my favorite verses in the Bible, which is in, I have to be careful how to pronounce this, Zechariah, it's not something you say every day, Um, chapter 4, verse 10 which says, do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Don't despise small beginnings. The Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Um, Five years ago, um, it was May 2014, I was on maternity leave. So we have four daughters, and our third daughter, Evie, had just been born. Um, She was just two months old, and I decided to take up a hobby. Not the best time probably to take up a hobby, but she was sleeping a lot at this point. So I bought some knitting needles, um, some balls of yarn, some wool, um, and this very, very, very basic, the most basic book that I could find about how to knit. I had actually done it as a kid, I think maybe when I was about 12 or something, but this was about 15 years later, um, I decided to take it up again. And hopefully we should have the next slide, if we put the next slide up, there's a picture of the small beginnings I'll move out the way so you can see it. So I took a picture. I managed to find it. I was quite impressed. Um, So I took a picture of literally the first few rows of this scarf that I decided to knit in May. (laughs) I decided to knit a scarf. I think I knew how long it might take me. Um, (laughs) I know myself quite well. Um, But yeah, anyway, five months later, uh, I posted something on Facebook where I said that I was restarting my knitting um, because Harriet had, this her uh, second daughter, Harriet had dropped some of the stitches um, and I'd put it in a bag for three months and forgotten about it. And I was like, no, I really need to get this finished because now winter really is on the way. I want to get this scarf finished. Um, basically, I just got totally fed up again because I kept making mistakes or one of the kids would pick it up and it would fall off. It was an absolute nightmare. I got fed up of having to unravel and restitch, unravel and restitch. Um, I actually found the scarf. Well, I I say that I found it. Stephen found it. Um, He's like, I know exactly where that scarf is. (laughs) 
He's like, I've been waiting to throw it out. <laughs> no, don't, don't. But I actually got pretty far. I got further than I fo- thought, actually. Hang on. Like, so that's quite, that's, it's not too bad. I think this is, uh, this is the middle. Sorry. Because I've got like a, a symmetrical pattern. So, yeah. Someone said to me, it looks like something out of Harry Potter. <laughs> it actually does. Not sure what uh, house I would be in. But anyway, it's a bit of a mixture of the different colors. Will this scarf ever be completed? I don't know. It's a work in progress. Well, it's not really in progress anymore. <laughs> Maybe I should get going again. Now that we're coming to the end of the wind. Uh, you might see me wearing it in a few months. Never know. Realistically, I know myself. I, if, if I ever finish this, I'll be well impressed with myself. But as I was preparing for today, um, God reminded me that unlike me in this scarf, he always completes the things that he has begun. And then I remembered this verse in Philippians 1, verse 6, where he says that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're going to be dipping in and out of Exodus 14. If you have a Bible, I hope you don't get lost, because I I will say what verses things are in, but we're not going to read a section of it. We're just going to kind of be dipping in and out um, and reading verses here and there. But we're going to be using this verse in Philippians as almost like a lens or a template, a lens to look at it through or a template to kind of structure it um, as we look through this chapter. Shaky hands. It's our worship. I'm like, oh, sorry. Um, So what is the good work that um, God has begun in us? I love a musical. So um, in the words of Julie Andrews, in in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Um, At the beginning of time, God created the whole universe, everything that's in it, and then he created a man and a woman, Adam and Eve, and these were his dearly loved children. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God looks upon his whole creation, everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. He calls this work very good. The good work had begun. There's a song called Faithful to the End, which some of you might know, and it has these lovely words. It says that we're heaven-spun creations, his pride, his adoration, treasures woven by his love. And it's true, because this comes right from the Bible, where it says in Psalm 139 that we have been knit together in our mother's womb. Hopefully, uh, well, most of us, I think God's done a better job than me anyway. He's actually finished us. (laughs) But um, yeah, we've been knit together in our mother's womb. So first and foremost, the good work that God has begun in us is our very existence. We are alive, and it's God's work. Now, we all had a very, 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 very small beginning. Um, Two cells fused together, that's how we all began, Um, 0.1 millimeters in size. But at that miraculous moment, I can guarantee you, before your parents even knew that you were there, your father God was rejoicing. He was, sorry, he was rejoicing over you, just like he's rejoicing over you today, just like he will always rejoice over you. We're singing about the good, good father, he is a good, good father, he rejoices over his children. For some of us here, that might be the only thing that we actually need God to say to us today, that he rejoices over us. In Zephaniah chapter 3, it says that he will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet us with his love. He will rejoice over us with singing. And my kind of prayer for today is that 
that sinks in a little bit deeper for some of us in the room, that we know that we are God's handiwork, that we are unique, that he sees us as precious. And when we become a little bit unraveled, maybe like this scarf, he really does patiently stitch us back together. If we make a mistake and, you know, mess it up and get all in a tangle or we go off on the wrong track, he puts us back together, he corrects us, he leads us back in the direction that we should go. We can trust him to do that patiently and graciously in our lives. So we've been knit together, um, and so God has begun a good work in us. But we're supposed to be looking at Exodus, so let's look at Exodus. Um, let's recap first of all. So not, God has done a good work in his people so far, hasn't he? <laughs> we've got to the point where the Egyptians have finally released the Israelites from slavery, and they are free. Hallelujah. Can you imagine the atmosphere? I can't, I can't even get my mind around this, how they must have felt. These 600,000, that's just the men, plus all the children, women, I mean, that's millions of people, as they began this journey from captivity to freedom. 400 years, maybe more, of hard labor, cruel punishments, and now they are free. I, can't, I just can't get my head around that. I can't even imagine how they felt. Um, because, I mean, it's difficult. If we've never been a slave, if we've never been set free like that, how can we get our minds around that? Around that? But Jesus says in uh, John eight thirty four, he says uh, these words. He says, I tell you that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If we have sinned, at that point, we become a slave to sin. So actually, all of us in the room, we have been slaves. But if we believe in Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, then sin, death, fear, as we've been experiencing this morning, they, they have lost their grip on us. We've been set free. And we can echo the words in Romans 6, where, and we can say these words, Thanks be to God that though I used to be a slave, I have been set free. Freedom can absolutely never be found until we have been released from sin's shackles until we've been set free from those chains. But it doesn't stop there. True freedom is found when we fully embrace the identity, the real identity, as children of God. Galatians 4, it says that we were in slavery, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because we are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, that means dad, (laughs) father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a child of God. Now we can be shackled to all sorts of things. It's a very long list of the things that can be like these chains around us. We can be shackled to sin, we can be shackled to shame, we can be shackled to regrets, mistakes, our anger, we can be shackled to bitterness, fears, anxiety, unhealthy desires, love of money, sickness, illness, pain, our desire to please everyone around us, our depression, the list goes on and on and on and on. But until we have been set free, these things will only hold us back. They will pull us in the wrong direction because a slave is led by their shackles. But when we become children of God, child how do you lead a child 
by the hand. When we turn from our old ways and we surrender to God, we receive his forgiveness, we receive his freedom from these things that are like chains and shackles in our lives. We become a child of God and the good, good father leads his children by the hand. It's this amazing picture of what it looks like to be in relationship with God. It's all about his love and how we can put our trust in him because he loves us so much. We still need to be led. If we're children, we still need to be led, but we can fully trust him because he loves us. And we can fully trust that we can submit to him as our parent. Um, We can submit to his leadership, to his authority, to his will. And as we do that, as we place our hand in his, it's like we say, show us the way. Show me the way. Show me the way, Dad. And he does. It's the same as if you see a dad taking their kid out for a walk. Um, God is like that with us. He leads us every step of the way. He doesn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He protects us from danger along the walk. He walks at a pace that we can keep up with. When we're fed up and tired and we're ready to give up, I'm just thinking of my kids now, they just sort of almost like sit down. I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere. Um, he encourages us. He, com- he, yeah, he spurs us on. And he also knows, actually, let's just take a break. Let's sit on this bench for a while. Let's enjoy the view. Let's have a rest. He takes along all the provisions that we might need. I'm thinking of snacks and all these kind of things, water. But he takes along everything that we might need for the journey. And if we stumble, he will carry us in the safety and the comfort of his arms. He will carry us for as long as we need. A slave is led by their shackles, but a child is led by the hand. So the Israelites have been set free from slavery, and now they are being led by God. They have put their hand in his hand, and they are going where he tells them to go. His tangible presence is represented here by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, leading them. And later on um, in verse 8, in, this is Exodus 14, in verse 8, we're told that the Israelites were marching out boldly. I can see it in my mind. <laughs> Why? Well, they're free. Of course they're marching out boldly. Um, but also they had every confidence. At this point, they had every confidence in God's ability to take the lead from here. It's complete trust in him. And it's a great image as we think of this nation of people marching out boldly from the land where they have been enslaved for so long. Then a very, very interesting thing happens. Because there was a direct route out of Egypt, which went east, and it would have led them just along the Mediterranean coastline. It was the quickest way to get out of that place. But God doesn't take them down that road. He takes them south instead. And I love the message translation. I love just reading sometimes it from that, the way they phrase stuff. Um, And I love it here where it says, it just so happened. It just so happened that God leads them down a dead-end road. It's like a little bit of a clue, like, hmm, what's going on here? Um, He tells them to camp on the shore of the Red Sea. They have water on one side and a desert on the other. There's no way through. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
yet they do it. It says, they follow, they go, they did what he said. They don't ask any questions, at least not yet. But when we rewind just a little bit, there's this phrase in previous chapter, in chapter 13, it sounds like the perfect end to a great story. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. I love it. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. It's like you're waiting for the, the end. Close the book. End of Exodus. Hallelujah. Fantastic. The people are free. But God is not finished yet. The work is not over until he says that it's done. Have we got any fans of the Marvel movies? Do you like a little bit of action? Like a bit of superheroes? Yeah. Um, I, I do quite like them. Yeah. It's not my favorite kind of movie, but yeah, I do like them. But, you know, sometimes what happens in these movies is, is basically this, I think Exodus is a bit like this, um, where in these movies where it's like, it's done, the battle's over, victory, woohoo, the hero's won, save the day, and then the baddie comes back up from the shadows or like from the rubble. I'm just like picturing like, I don't know, somebody, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a movie where this actually happens, but yeah, it does. And then there has to be another battle because the baddie's back. And then there has to be another win for the superhero. And the world has to be saved again. And it's victory at last. And then the movie's actually over. But then they bring out a sequel. And it's the same baddie. He's back. How did he come back? (laughs) They're making money from this somehow. (laughs) But it is. It's always good against evil. And the baddie against the goodie. And the hero wins. And it's battle, victory, battle, victory. It's a bit like that. Because we expect this to be the end. But it's not. The Israelites, like I say in verse 8, were marching out boldly. Their enemy had been defeated. Their past was absolutely behind them. But suddenly, the Pharaoh has a change of heart. He wants his workforce back. He realizes he's made a terrible economical decision. Um, He wants these people back. He's lost his labor force. And he decides to pursue the Israelites. And as he approaches with his army of chariots... They look up, they look at this enemy approaching, and suddenly fear grips their heart. We read that they're terrified. This happens in the space of two verses. What changes in those two verses for them to go from courage to fear? They're still free. They're still free. That hadn't changed. But they see their enemy coming after them, and suddenly they are They're basically begging Moses to go back. They are desperate to be slaves again. I wonder how often we find ourselves in this same panic, petrified when we see the enemy coming after us, forgetting that we are forever free. Jesus says himself in John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We sing that song, it's great. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. But because of their crippling fear, the Israelites are ready to head right back to Egypt with their oppressors. And when I read this, my heart just sank for those people. And I just felt God say, no, no, don't crave those days. Don't crave being a slave. Those days are done. We are no longer slaves to fear. None of that has any hold on us anymore. Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. 
Our freedom is secure. It's not in jeopardy. But we cannot deny that we are being pursued by an enemy. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Be alert and of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to, be, someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. It doesn't say be frightened. It says resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Moses gives the exact same instruction to his people, to God's people. In this chapter 13 and 14 in Exodus, it says, Do not be afraid. This is Moses speaking to his people. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What is the right response? to the enemy's attack, to fear coming in. Don't fear. Stand firm. Be still. So I've been doing a little bit of research on quicksand. Sorry, can we go to the next slide? Is that okay? Um, I've been doing a bit of research on quicksand. Um, the scientists in the room will love this, I think. I don't know. Um, quicksand is a non-Newtonian fluid. To some people, that will make sense. <laughs> It's a non-Newtonian fluid. It's made of sand mixed with water, sometimes air. And basically, this means that it changes in how thick and gloopy it is. That's my technical term. Um, when there's movement or vibration. So if you happen to fall into quicksand, you will sink. But it will be really difficult to escape because of this, the, the consistency that it is. Uh, and despite what you've seen in the movies, um, it's actually a myth. You cannot drown in, in quicksand. If you do fall into it, you can only actually sink into it up to your waist. After that, you can't actually sink any further, just because it's this weird mix between solid and liquid. Um, but it is still dangerous. Because if you're not rescued, if you're there for a long, long time, basically until you're rescued, you're trapped. If you try and panic and flap about and try to escape yourself, you're probably just going to sink further in and become more trapped. So the secret is, just in case you fall into quicksand, <laughs> you can thank me for this. I don't know if there's any in Inverness anywhere. <laughs> It'd be a bit of a surprise if there was. But the secret is to remain completely calm. That's the first thing you do. Stay as still as you possibly can and just shout for help and wait to be rescued. How much is this like fear? How much is this like us when we feel like the enemy's coming after us or when we feel surrounded by that feeling of, I'm trapped, I'm stuck. You feel like you're sinking, but actually, it's not, you can't drown in it. <laughs> the secret is to be rescued, to, to call for help, to remain calm, to not be afraid, to not panic. Um, Deuteronomy, in chapter 20, at the beginning of the chapter, it says, when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than you, do not be afraid of them, because the Lord your God will be with you. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid. Do not panic. Do not be terrified. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. Don't fear. Stand firm. Be still. The Lord is the one who fights for us. And he is the one who saves us from the hands of the enemy. 
And we can completely trust him to save us because anything that the enemy sends our way for, to cause us harm against us, God means it for good. And even when we feel like we are sinking, like in that quicksand, he is there when we call for help and he will rescue us from harm. So we are knit together. We have been set free. We are being rescued. The Lord is fighting for us. And we are also being empowered. The Israelites are completely trapped. They have, like I said before, the Red Sea on one side, a desert on the other, and now they have the Egyptian army coming that way as well. There is absolutely no way out. And this next bit, whenever I read it, it reminds me of the book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, the sea, the deep red sea. We can't go over it. I feel like we should all be joining in. (laughs) We can't go under it. Oh, no, we have to go through it. Maybe that's where the inspiration came for that story. I don't know. Maybe. Do you have any idea, though, how heavy water is? There's a little bit of, like, trivia. I feel like I'm doing lots of, like, facts, like, sending facts your way. Useless facts, useless information. You might use it. But um, water is heavy. If I carry a water bottle around with me all the time, sometimes I put it in my bag, and if it's full, it's heavy. Um, if you enjoy a bath, hands up if you like, like a deep, relaxing bath, just like, oh, yeah, that's a good way to end a stressful day. Yep, you are surrounded by 180 kilograms of water. If you like a dip in the hot tub... Maybe if you're staying in a fancy hotel, weekend away, one or two tons of water is what you're submerging yourself in there. If you are a swimmer, um, it's 375 tons of water in the average swimming pool. You don't want to know about Loch Ness. <laughs> it's very, very deep. I knew that before I looked into this. How, I knew that Loch Ness, do you, think, do you think you know? How many tons do you think? Yeah. It's lovely, isn't it? Well, lots of people enjoy swimming in Loch Ness. But in Loch Ness, it's estimated that there is 7 billion tons of water. (laughs) That kind of puts me off ever going in there again. (laughs) But I don't know how much water was in the Red Sea, but it might have been something like that. But somehow, with an almighty wind, God holds back this colossal barricade that stands between the Israelites and their victory. The sheer weight behind those walls of water on either side of them as they're walking through, that just blows my mind. Can you imagine actually walking through that? It's like, will it hold? (laughs) Our God is that strong. Our God is that powerful. He has the authority to tell the sea, dry up, Um, I've spoken a bit about superheroes already, but has anyone seen Incredibles 2 or the Incredibles movies? Do you like them? My favorite scene in Incredibles 2, and if you've seen it, it'll play out in your mind, but it's hilarious where this baby Jack-Jack gets his superpowers. (laughs) Um, So if you haven't seen the movie, baby Jack-Jack is part of a superhero family. This is a cartoon. It's not not a documentary. (laughs) Just in case, just to clear that up. Um, Superheroes maybe are real, I don't know. His his dad is Mr. Incredible, so his superpower is strength. And his mum is Elastigirl, and she's super, super stretchy. 
It's not really a super power that I'd thought of before I'd seen that movie, but super stretchy, anyway. Comes in handy as a mum, I suppose, being able to juggle everything. His sister is called Violet, and she has the power to make herself invisible, and she can also create these force fields to protect herself and her family. And then his brother Dash has super speed. He's very competitive on sports day. <laughs> Um, he has super speed, but up until this scene in, this, in the second movie, baby, they, they, the whole family think that baby Jack-Jack has no powers. But they do expect him to get them because of who his parents are. Anyway, he doesn't just get one superpower. <laughs> superpower. He ends up in this scene, he, has, he can set himself on fire, he can turn himself into metal, he can become a goblin... He has laser eyes, he can float, he can teleport, he can walk through walls, he can clone himself. And it's all like one after the other that he gets all these powers. Uh, just out of interest, who would choose invisibility? Who would choose that? Strength? Speed? What would you choose? Stretchiness? <laughs> all of God's power is available and accessible to us. It's not just a little bit. It's because of who he is. It's because he is our father that it's even accessible to us in the first place. Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, be, to him be the glory. So the power is not ours, absolutely not. It's all God's. But like Moses, we have a part to play. And as Moses raised that staff, his obedience to do as God had asked, his faith that something would actually happen, those things worked like keys in a lock to open up the door to the impossible. Because of who our Father is, we should expect to see his power at work in our lives in impossible and miraculous ways. Finally, in verse 28, God finishes what he started and the work is complete. The water flowed back, covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. So we are being empowered. One glorious day, we will see a victory just like this. First um, Corinthians 15.26 tells us that the, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is defeated. One day death will be destroyed. Isaiah 28, 8, 25, 8, sorry, promises that the Lord will swallow up death forever, just like he swallowed up that Egyptian army. When Jesus returns, he will destroy the enemy once and for all. What a hope to cling on to. What a promise, what a future. And with all my heart, I believe that this is true. If God says this will happen, it will happen. But I struggle, and I'm sure a lot of us do in the room, I really struggle sometimes to live with heaven in mind, with this sort of victory mindset that this will happen, that this is going to happen, that the work will be completed. It often feels like I'm basically living in this limbo between um, the now and the not yet of God's kingdom. You know, it, it is here, but it's not fully here. And as I was praying over this, the picture that I saw in my mind was of a person jumping, it'll be the next slide, um, a person jumping from one rock to another. There we go, you can see it up there. And in my mind, it was like something out of the Matrix, 
because this person wasn't actually moving. It was just like I was like seeing them kind of just midair in the middle of this jump. And I just felt God say that we are living in the leap. You know, this person, if you look at them, their destination is certain. They will land on the other side. They've made that leap of faith. They've put their trust in Jesus. They're living in the leap. They've been set free from their sins. Their trajectory, it's a big word, is set. And there's definitely no way, there's no way back from there. <laughs> you can't suddenly change your mind and go falling backwards. They're, like I say, the person is landing on that other rock on the other side. There's no doubt about it. It's just a matter of time. Is this a scary place to be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it exciting? Oh, yeah. Look at it. Looks awesome. <laughs> this is the place where fear and faith can collide. But it will not change our course because that is set. And when we're living in that leap, God is bringing his work in us to completion. Coming to the end here. <laughs> so Galatians 3.3 um, 3 speaks of how we are now being perfected. God is a perfectionist. I don't know if there's any perfectionists in the room, but God is a perfectionist. He has a perfect love that casts out our fear. And when we're living in this place, he is perfecting our faith as we live in this leap between our past, our slavery to sin, and our future, which is an eternity spent with him. One day this work will be done. It'll be complete. And Jesus will return. He will rescue us from every evil attack and bring us safely to the heavenly kingdom. And if we've received this forgiveness through Jesus, heaven is our home. We're already on our way. But until then, let's just enjoy living in the leap. I, I think it looks quite fun. <laughs> it's a fun place to be. Let's stand.